Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. But the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and today's episode is all about tying up loose ends. We are quickly approaching the end of case number two, the Smith County cases. On December 20th of 2015, we launched case number two with episode 201, The Blizzard. At that time, we were just getting our feet wet in Smith County. Kenny Snow's niece, Panetta Rains, had written in and asked me to look into her uncle's insane case from Smith County, Texas. Since then, we have produced 53 podcast episodes about Smith County, along with about a dozen follow-up episodes. Spinesha's letter led us from Kenny Snow to Carrie Max Cook, and ultimately to Edward Ates. Over the last year, we've had a lot of ups and a few downs. Carrie Cook's conviction after over 20 years was finally vacated this past summer, but then his claim of actual innocence was denied. Our investigation into Kenny Snow's case led us to Bill Cole, who seemed to have the smoking gun to prove that Kenny Snow was innocent. And the Truth and Justice Army was even able to secure a lawyer for Kenny Snow. And of course, the majority of this year has been dedicated to reinvestigating the murder of Elnora Griffith. We have made leaps and bounds to not only proving Edward Eight's innocence, but we've also narrowed the field of suspects down to just a handful of people. We were able to convince the Innocence Project of Texas to take Ed's case, and we are quickly approaching the time when Allison Clayton will be filing motions to make the case for Ed's actual innocence. When we reach that point, which is just right around the corner, we will be hitting pause on the reporting of Ed's case on the podcast, and the baton will be passed to Allison Clayton to fight the real battle in court. But before we get to the point of passing the baton on to Allison, I want to take this episode to tie up two loose ends that have been hanging over us for the last year. And those two loose ends are Francis Johnson and the status of Kenny Snow's case. So let's get started with Francis Johnson. (music) 
Leonard Francis Johnson has been a mystery to us since the very beginning of this case. The reason we began looking into Ed's case to begin with was because Kenny Snow told us that he had lied under oath. And the lie that Kenny Snow told revolved around a conversation that Ed had with Francis Johnson in the Smith County Jail. When Kenny told me what had happened, that he had overheard Francis talking to Ed, and that he had lied at trial and said that Ed tried to make him lie, Francis Johnson was my number one suspect in this murder. And that's because the supposed script that Kenny Snow presented to David Dobbs appeared as though Francis Johnson had all but confessed to the murder. Let me read to you again the air quotes script that started all of this. This was State's Exhibit 201 at Ed's second trial, a handwritten note that reads as follows. I talked to Francis Johnson at the jail. We talked about what we were both in here for. Then he said, I thought you were finished with that shit, and I told him no, not yet. Then he said, you know, I seen her twice that day. Then I said, who? Francis said, Elnora. I said, where? He said he saw her coming through Jackson Heights. She had just left Edward's store, and he flagged her down and talked to her for a few minutes. Then he said she loaned me $20, and she told him she didn't have it right now. If I go to town later, I'll get it. Then he said she had to leave. Then he said he went over to the house about 8 or 8.30, he said. They talked, and she asked him if he had ate. He told her no. Then he said he ate a little and went back into the living room. Then he said I was waiting on the money then, but he said she wanted to fuck, so I knocked her off. Then I asked her about the money, and she said I didn't go to town, but I'll get it tomorrow. Then he said I need it now, so I'll have it first thing in the morning. Then he said she told him I'm not going nowhere else tonight. Then he said I slapped the hell out of her. Then he said she hit him in the chest, face, then I knocked the hell out of her again. He said she grabbed a knife and cut him on his hand, arm, and neck. Then he took the knife and wore her ass out. Then I left. One thing you might notice about that note is that it's very confusing. The pronouns and the perspectives are all over the place, but it basically tells the story of Ed talking to Francis Johnson, Francis saying that Elnora owed him money, he was there that night, they had sex, they got into a fight, she cut him, and then he left. From the very beginning, this note was always very confusing. Kenny Snow never really knew what the note was all about. He was never really clear of exactly what his testimony against Ed was supposed to be, just that Ed had paid him to lie. When I talked to Ed about it from the very beginning, Ed was always confused about it. He never quite understood what the purpose of the note was. He said at one point the prosecution had him go do a handwriting analysis to verify that it was his handwriting, but he said he never understood that either because he never denied writing it. It was definitely a note that he had written down. But Ed has never understood where Kenny Snow got that note from. Kenny says that David Dobbs gave it to him, and Ed really doesn't have a clue. He just assumed that Kenny Snow had went into his cell and took it. But in any case, the details of this note certainly made Francis Johnson a prime suspect. I mean, after all, if it was true, he was saying that he was at Elnora's trailer and had a fight and she cut him that night. His blood and DNA should be on that scene. But after finally filtering through all of this and actually letting Ed see and read the note, Francis Johnson all of a sudden doesn't seem quite as nefarious as he did at the beginning. The details of this note have caught our attention because they were presented at trial as an exhibit, as a script. But the fact of the matter is, that's never what this was. 
Now remember, Kenny Snow's testimony was that Ed wrote this as a script for Kenny to say at trial. But when you read it, that doesn't make any sense. Because the writer of this note is the person who had the conversation. It starts off with, I talked to Francis Johnson at the jail. Kenny Snow never talked to Francis Johnson. Never testified that he did. Ed is the one who talked to Francis Johnson. And in fact, all this note ever was, was just that. A note. After Ed talked to Francis, he called his lawyer, Tom McLean. He told him that he had talked to Francis, and Francis had told him that he was there that night, and that he had an argument with Elnora. Ed says that Tom told him to write down notes about everything that was said so he could remember it the next time they met. But a few days later, Ed bonded out, he couldn't find his notes, and nothing ever really panned out with Francis for the defense. When I recently asked Ed about the details of this note when I read them to him, he said from the best he can remember, that's not exactly what was said. He said that he doesn't actually remember Francis telling him that Elnora had cut him with a knife. He said that Francis had told him he was there, and they fought, and Ed had seen scars on his neck and arms, and wondered if that might not have been from the fight. This note that we all see here, that was so devastating to Ed at trial, was never meant to be seen by anyone but Ed. Ed told me that the details of the note are exaggerated. Again, he never thought anyone was going to see it. He said he was trying to connect dots in his mind that day. Could the cuts on Francis's neck come from Elnora? Maybe they did. Maybe she cut him with a knife that day when they were arguing over money. At the end of the day, when this note gets introduced at trial as some kind of a script, it certainly makes Ed look like a big liar, especially now when he's saying that that's not exactly how the conversation went down. But it wasn't a lie. It was a note, a narrative, that Ed wrote to himself. What we do know is that there's no evidence of Francis Johnson being cut by a knife in Elnora's trailer. There's no blood anywhere on the scene except for right around Elnora's body. There was no blood found anywhere else. Once this note was turned over to Dobbs, both sides started looking for more information about Francis Johnson. Ed's attorneys were looking into him as a suspect, while the prosecution wanted to rule him out. Both of these searches led to obtaining Francis Johnson's medical records from Clayton County, Georgia, during the time of Elnora's murder. But what was found was inconclusive. Francis Johnson does have a scar on his neck. But according to the medical records, he had neck surgery, and the scar could have come from that. Francis Johnson had a lot of medical activity happening in August of 1993, the month after Elnora was killed. There was a workers' comp claim, a surgery on his back or his neck, and since this conversation happened four years later in 1997, there's no way of knowing if that's where these scars actually came from, and neither side seems to have pursued it any further. So if we take away this note that Ed wrote to himself, what evidence do we have left that Francis Johnson might be a suspect in Elnora's murder? Well, we do have the fact that Ed remembers Francis saying he did see her that day and they did have an argument. Kenny Snow does say that he did overhear that conversation. And Ed's mother, Margie Jackson, says that when she was dating Francis, that he had told her that he was there that night, hiding behind a tree. None of this looks good for Francis. But one of the most difficult parts of my job, investigating a case from 20 years ago, is that memories fade and people lie. And I'm not accusing any of these people of lying, but I'll tell you now the same thing that I tell every inmate that writes me a letter or calls me and wants me to look into their case. I tell them all the same thing. I don't believe anyone 
I only believe what I can prove. Even an innocent person will lie sometimes. A perfect example of that is Edward Aids. Remember what got him into this mess to begin with. A simple lie about how he got to his girlfriend's house that night. The bottom line is, all that really matters is what I can prove. So what can I prove about Francis Johnson? Well, not a whole lot. I can't even actually prove that he was in Texas at the time of the murder. The evidence seems to suggest that he was, but all we really know is that the evidence that was presented at trial does not prove that he wasn't. At the second trial, we do know that he initially testified that he was in Texas working on the pond around the time of the murder. We also have the ISIS interview with William Scott, where he said that he was working with Francis on that pond about the time of the murder. And his payroll records on Exhibit 137 seem to indicate he was not in Georgia working around the time of the murder. My best assumption, and that's all it can be at this point, is an assumption is that Francis most likely was in Tyler when Elnora was killed. I think that it is likely that he did in fact see her on the day that she was killed. The story about Francis trying to get money from Elnora actually makes sense when we look at her bank records. We know that she was almost out of money. We know that she had withdrawn $10 from an ATM that morning. And we know that she was about to get paid the next day, when she would have access to more money. But what we don't have is any physical evidence indicating that Francis was, in fact, at Elnora's trailer that night. There certainly seems to be no indication of blood. We know that Elnora was alive after 10 o'clock when she talked to Kubia, and we know that Leonard Mosley was supposed to come by that night around midnight. Since there were seven latent fingerprints found at the scene that were never compared to anyone besides Ed, Leonard, and Elnora, it's possible that one of those seven fingerprints belonged to Francis Johnson. But at this point, we have no idea if that's actually the case. And since I've been unsuccessful in actually locating and speaking to Francis Johnson for nearly a year now, I did some digging this week to try to figure out if I can at least get an idea of what kind of man Francis was. We know that he was a drug addict back then. We've heard stories from Margie Jackson and from Ed, and Francis does have quite a rap sheet. He's had several drug charges in his life. But what he does not have is any violent offenses on his record. Ever. His rap sheet reads as though he was just a guy with a drug problem who pretty much minded his own business. Unless he needed to steal money from someone to pay for his drugs. All of which he did in passive ways. Like writing a bad check. Or skimming money from a boss. Never armed robbery or burglary of any kind. Just theft. And now that we have Francis Johnson's testimony from the first trial we have a little bit clearer picture of him as a person. At the second trial, he nonchalantly got onto the stand, answered the questions, some of which tended to incriminate him, and then under cross-examination when David Dobbs questioned him, he was led to alibi himself for the murder. And that was that. But Francis was called as a witness by the defense at the first trial. This transcript will be up on the website, and I'd love for you to go read it, because honestly, at the end of the day, after reading it, I have no idea why the defense called him. Remember, the first trial occurred in 1996, before the incident at the jail with Kenny Snow. And when you read the transcript, the defense accomplished nothing by calling Francis to the stand, and I can't even see what they were attempting to get at with him. But we do at least learn a little bit about him. We know that Francis did indeed date Elnora at some time. We know that he helped her move into her trailer, and that he paid her first month's rent for her. And we also know that he broke up with Elnora. 
He seems like the kind of guy to me that doesn't like drama. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No I'm going to read to you an excerpt from his testimony. I'm going to read it to you because I don't know how to describe it to you. Francis is kind of all over the place in this response. Ed's attorney asked Francis the following question. And sir, you dated Miss Mosley until, or excuse me, Miss Griffin until what point? What happened to cause you to stop dating? So remember now, the question was, why did you break up? This is Francis's response. Well, we had had, we had a party. The lady next door, I believe, it was Johnny Massenberg at the time, had a party for something like a fish fry. And I had contracted some work on a pond. A fish pond that she had built in the back of her home. And day to day, I would have to go by and check on the pond to make sure if it was leaking. That was my job to stop the leaks through the dam. So I put the supplies in to stop the leak. Then she wanted it sodded. That's put grass on top of the dam. And make sure it was living before I could get paid. That was a day-to-day routine time. So every afternoon I was there with sprinklers being sure the sod was taken care of. That's when I met Miss Elnora. I found out there was a cousin or something that she had came from Dallas. She came out and was admiring the work and asked me what field of construction I was in. I told her I build homes. I build streets, just general construction. And she was, I guess, telling me that she really liked my work. She had planned on moving in the trailer next to her cousin Johnny. She needed work done, such as a porch. There was a few doors with air seepage. She wanted those stopped up, so I agreed to look at them and give her a price. The price that I gave her I thought was fair, but that seemed not to have... David Dobbs had had enough here, and rightfully so. Dobbs interjects, Number one, this is hearsay from Miss Griffin, who has no opportunity to present any side of what he's saying. Number two, this is non-responsive. Judge Gomert sustained the non-responsive part. Remember, the question was, why did you and Elnora break up? I've tried to piece together the timeline of exactly what Francis was describing here, and none of it really seems to make sense. He's kind of all over the place. He starts off by talking about a fish fry, which seems to be him talking about when he met Elnora. But as you'll see here as he goes on, that fish fry actually seems to be when they broke up, which I'll get to in just a minute. But he's also talking about when he was there working on the pond. And he says that he met Elnora when he was working on the pond, and she came out to watch the work he was doing. And he says this was before she moved into the trailer, but she was planning on it. But he was planting sod and watering it at the time. Now I know East Texas tends to be warmer than Michigan, but I'd love an answer to the question of, do people plant sod and water it in the wintertime? And the reason I say that is because Francis Johnson was contracted to work on the pond after Johnny Pryor's husband died, who died in late 92, and the funeral was in December of 92. 
It was at his funeral, according to Johnny, that December when she decided she was going to move into the trailer next door, which she did just a couple of weeks later, and at which point Francis had no contract to work on the pond yet. So I guess the point here is that there's really no point. Francis is all over the place, and it still doesn't help us to narrow down when he was working on that pond. But he does seem pretty clear about why he and Elnora broke up. McLean asked Francis again why he broke up with Elnora. Francis says, I don't remember the exact date, but I remember the incident that caused me to break off the relationship. Question, what was that, sir? Answer, that was at this same party. There was a guy that was there, and I was there. I didn't know who this guy was. I don't know whether he knew who I was or not, but I had asked Miss Griffin to kind of introduce me or make me acquainted or why are you not sitting over here with me or what is the deal? And she just said she had to mingle with the rest of the crowd. So I didn't live very far from there, so I just decided to wait it out. In the meantime, I saw this Corvette, which was a new white Corvette parked in the drive, and I waited around, I guess a couple of three hours. This was the car that I saw the guy get into. So I tells Miss Griffin that I'm about to leave. I'm going to go home. I left and went home. McLean follows up, Is the reason that you left the party, sir, because of the man in the Corvette? Francis, yes. Where was the man in the Corvette staying at the time? I don't know where he was staying. I know where he spent that night. Where was that? At the trailer next door. Okay, and who was staying there at that time? Elnora. So this exchange is consistent with what Francis said at the second trial. That he and Elnora were dating, he helped her move in, he paid her first month's rent, and then he saw that the man in the white Corvette had spent the night at her trailer, so he broke up with her. And as far as we know, that was the end of their relationship. Neither Johnny, nor Kubia, or Ed, or Margie have said anything about the two of them continuing to date or even have communication with one another after that. Francis testified at the second trial that he had seen her a few times at parties after that, and they were just friendly with each other. Other than this exchange, there wasn't more to Francis Johnson's testimony that the jury ever heard. He was on and off the stand relatively quickly, and again, I cannot for the life of me figure out the point of the defense even putting him on the stand. But there were a couple of things that the jury didn't hear that tell us a little bit more about Francis Johnson. As it turns out, Ed's own attorneys were concerned that Francis Johnson was going to cause a mistrial. Right after Francis got on the stand and was sworn in, Dobbs asked for a bench conference. This is the transcript from that bench conference. Dobbs. Judge, I'm a little scared because Mr. McLean leans over to me and said he was warning me that this guy has strong feelings about whether Mr. Aids is innocent or guilty, and he might blurt something out, something like that. My concern is I don't want to get into a situation where he blurts something out and he says, I told you I was bored, I am stuck with it, and my choice is to go for a mistrial. McLean, I'm well aware of the criminal procedure as Mr. Dobbs has taught me a lot and I have talked to the witness. I don't anticipate a problem. Dobbs, my concern has nothing to do with Mr. McLean doing anything underhanded. I want to make sure that I don't end up getting hurt. Judge Gomert, what are you wanting to do? Dobbs, for you to admonish him that his opinion of the case is not relevant. Do not give an answer as to whether he thinks Ed Eights has anything to do with it. McLean, that would be prejudicial in front of the jury. Dobbs, I'm not asking him to do that in front of the jury. Tell him to lean over and talk into the microphone to make sure he answers the questions that are asked. End of bench conference. Judge Gomert goes on to warn Francis not to volunteer anything other than what's asked. A few minutes later during cross-examination, when David Dobbs is questioning Francis, 
Dobbs asks, do you know the defendant? Answer, yes, I do. Question, how do you know the defendant? McLean stands up and puts a stop to it. Your Honor, may I approach the bench? McLean says, if he wants to get something extraneous in, he worked as a foreman at one time. If he wants to get something in, he came up here and warned me. Dobbs interjects, what is he talking about? McLean, he is asking if he knows Edward Aids. Judge Gomert, he said that he did. McLean, fine. Dobbs, what are your concerns? I'm going to go tell me I don't know anything about this man. McLean, he has been saying Edward did not do this. I told him I will not mention Edward Aids' name. I'm warning you that he narrates. I'm warning you that he is liable to come up and say Edward did not do this. Dobbs, he better not. Judge Gomert told him to answer a question. I will not ask a question that will be that open. End of bench conference. This exchange was one of the main reasons I made my trip to Texas a couple of weeks ago, and why I have so desperately been trying to track down Francis Johnson. As I read McLean's warnings, it seems to me that Francis Johnson was adamant during their conversations before the trial that Edward did not do this. And the question that I've been dying to ask Francis Johnson is, why do you feel so strongly that Ed didn't do this? But unfortunately, to this day, I have still not been able to get a hold of Francis. And that's where we stand with Francis Johnson as a suspect. People ask me all the time for my opinion, and so I guess at this point I'll give it to you. My opinion is that Francis Johnson had nothing to do with this murder, but I believe that he may have information that might help to figure out who did. But that's just my opinion. It's my gut. And my gut means nothing at the end of the day. So at this point, all I can really say is that I am not in a position to rule out Francis Johnson as a suspect. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. For our last segment today, I wanted to give you all an update on Kenny Snow's case. I know it's been frustrating for everyone not hearing about what's been happening, and the reason that I haven't been talking about it is because the outlook on Kenny's case for the last several months has been somewhat grim. Kenny's case was difficult to begin with. Unlike Ed's case, Kenny never had a trial. There's no transcripts to pick apart, there's very little of an investigation to look into, and remember that Kenny actually confessed to one of the robberies and pled guilty to both. As I'm learning more and more about the criminal justice system, I'm learning that these are massive obstacles to overcome. We've identified some very clear prosecutorial misconduct in Kenny's case. My naive self of a year ago thought that that would be enough. But the truth is, it may be enough, but getting a conviction like Kenny's overturned based on prosecutorial misconduct is not impossible, but it's nearly impossible. Over the last year and a half, I've gone through a roller coaster of emotions with Kenny. 
I still have and still remember reading the first letter I received from Kenny. And I remember the first time I got to speak with him on the phone. I was actually in Tyler, Texas when I got that call. Kenny's a bubbly guy. He's a happy guy considering all of his circumstances. And despite his past discretions, I truly believe that Kenny Snow is a good man. And I've wanted nothing more than to be able to give him his freedom back because I truly believe that he was convicted of a crime that he did not commit. Because Kenny confessed and pled guilty, and there was no real investigation and no DNA to be tested, his case is not one that qualified for the Innocence Project. But luckily, loyal listener Susan Schoon, who also happens to be an attorney, took on Kenny's case pro bono, and she's been working on it ever since. But I'm sad to report to all of you today that we've come across some major roadblocks. It does not mean that it's the end of the road for Kenny, but for right now, I have to say that things are not looking good. For starters, in order for Susan to be able to move forward with Kenny's case and actually file any motions, she needs to know exactly what happened in all of his hearings. Susan has been trying tirelessly for months to obtain the transcripts from all of Kenny's hearings, and she has hit roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. No one seems to be able to locate these documents. And at this point, we don't even know if they still exist. Susan hasn't been able to get a call back from Kenny's previous attorney, and she's made several trips to Tyler and has come up empty-handed every time so far. But last spring, we found some light at the end of the tunnel for Kenny. And that light came in the form of the victim in one of the robbery cases that Kenny was convicted of, Bill Cole. When I met Bill, he was a grizzled old man pissed off still to this day about that shithead boxer, as he put it, that had robbed him 20 years ago. But Bill was willing to sit down and talk to me, and he looked through the evidence in the case. And Bill Cole, the victim, went on the record with me, stating that he had only ever been shown mugshots one time, most of, if not all, of what was in the police file was incorrect, and the big bombshell was that he had never appeared in court in Kenny's case, even though we have someone who did appear in court in his case and presented themselves as Bill Cole. What we needed from Bill was an affidavit. Late this past summer, I called Bill and told him I was flying to Texas specifically to meet with him. I told him that I had printed out several pictures that I needed him to look at and I had an affidavit for him to sign. He said that he was more than happy to do it and he was even willing to testify for Kenny if necessary. But sadly, the day that I arrived in Tyler, Bill had to be rushed to the hospital for emergency surgery. He had to have his pacemaker replaced. On my last day in town, I talked to Bill. I'm sure most of you remember this. He had made it through the surgery okay, but he was still on bed rest and didn't want any company that day. At that point, he agreed that he'd be willing to meet with Kenny's attorney Susan the following week to look over the photos and sign the affidavit. At that point, Bill Cole looked to be our only hope in Kenny's case. But we never heard from him again. That next week, Susan called him repeatedly to try to meet with him with no answer. I tried calling. I tried looking him up on my next trip. And Susan tried to connect with him every time she was in East Texas over the next several months. Neither of us were ever able to connect with him. And three weeks ago, we finally found out why. Over the course of a few months, I had left several messages on Bill Cole's answering machine. And on a Sunday afternoon, just a few weeks ago, Bill's daughter finally called me back. Melanie was incredibly sweet when she called me. She apologized repeatedly for not getting back to me sooner. She's not actually from Tyler, 
She lives several hours away from her dad and has had a lot on her plate over the last several months. As it turns out, just a couple of days after I left Tyler, when I spoke with Bill and he told me they'd be willing to meet with Susan the next week, Bill Cole suffered a massive stroke. Melanie was thankful to report that her dad had lived through the stroke, but was sad to go on to tell me that he was not in good shape. He hasn't been home since that day. He's been incapacitated and living in some type of a nursing home ever since. She told me that she thinks that his mind is still with it, but it's hard to tell, because Bill hasn't been able to speak since the stroke. This news was devastating to me in a couple of ways. For starters, I've really grown to like Bill. He actually reminds me of my grandfather. Rough around the edges, but kind at his core. Bill could not be described as a sweet man, but he's definitely a good man. And beyond that, the harsh reality set in that without Bill Cole, Kenny Snow may not have a chance. I'm not ready to give up on Kenny. I won't give up on Kenny. But until something new breaks in his case, if something new breaks in his case, this will be the final chapter of Kenny's story on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Tate Krupa can be reached on Facebook at Tate Krupa Graphic Design. I want to thank our transcription team, Sarah Hoyt, Sarah Mueller, and Desiree Dunn. And a very special thanks to all of you. Our investigation into Smith County over the last year has been heartwarming, heartbreaking, and eye-opening, to say the least. We have two more episodes planned to close the books on Ed's case, and I hope that all of you will come along with us as we move on to Season 3, the week immediately following. Thank you again for all of your support. Please keep in touch through email, Facebook, or follow us on Twitter, at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.